0: It is good to be here to worship with you today, and uh, I want to take just a moment here at the beginning of uh, of the new year to talk about what we're doing as a church family, and uh, and just to begin with, to reminisce. Uh, it was really good over the last this week and last week to get to hear Jonathan uh, McKendry lead us in worship, and last week Corey Arsenal leading us in worship. Now, I jokingly talked about them as being second string and third string, but. Uh, I uh, you know, wow, uh, God is using those two young men incredibly, and uh, it, is, uh, it made me reflect back on a little over uh, almost six years ago when I sat down with Matthew, and he was, uh, we had a sense that God may be calling him here at that point to be an interim worship leader for us, and maybe beyond that, and I told him, I said, what I would want in a worship pastor is just that, a worship pastor. Not a music leader, not a music director, not somebody who saw their role as just about the music on Sunday morning. But in creating a ministry to God's people, through music, by using music as a tool for ministry, a tool for discipleship. And when we get to see uh, Jonathan come back after a couple years at college and lead us in the way he did this morning, Uh, and Corey uh, last Sunday leading us in worship, what a, what a beautiful picture of how God is working uh, through Matthew to raise up young men. And, you know, when you can have your one week, your worship minister sit at the piano and lead you in worship, another week uh, preach, and the next week sit behind the drums, uh, I think you God is doing a great thing there. So thank you, Jonathan and Matthew, uh, for your leadership today. We are beyond that next Sunday. Now, I normally don't do this. I, I don't like to telegraph when the pastor's out of town because generally when I do that, it's it's the old adage, when the, the cat is away, the mice will play. But next Sunday, y'all have an incredible opportunity. Zach Hudson is going to be leading worship for the disciple now and will lead worship on Sunday morning. And Kevin Skinner will be preaching the message next Sunday morning here in the pulpit. And so Kevin and Zach both served with me uh, as associate pastors in one, one function or another. Uh, in fact, both of those guys served in multiple roles, uh, both of them for over a decade, and they're, most of the time that they were here overlapped. And so you're gonna have the privilege of having Zach and Kevin come back and lead next Sunday. What I will be doing is I have the privilege of preaching at First Baptist Church Stockdale, Texas, where Kevin has pastored uh, for the last two and a half years. And so uh, and Kevin is presenting his vision to his church uh, this weekend, and then he's going to have me present the second half of vision to that church next Sunday. So I'm excited about that. I will miss y'all, but you will be blessed. I assure you that you don't want to miss it uh, to have those two guys back uh, leading in worship. So uh, look forward to that, and I pray that you're here. And then finally, the other thing that I wanted to, to touch on before I jump into the, the the sermon, is right now, if you haven't picked up on it yet, or if you're new and you're visiting with us today for the first time, this year our church is, is going through, we are reading the Bible together, and we're using a, 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 a particular plan called uh, the Bible Recap. It's a chronological plan. There are some little folded uh, brochures like this, or basically cards that are out there on the table that have that. If you need more instruction on how we're going about this, you can uh, use the QR code and it'll take you to the Bible Recap Starter Page uh, website. Basically what we're doing is this provides you a guide on what chapters of text to read each day. And if you will follow up with that, after you read the text from the Bible, which will take you, depending on if you're a slow reader, uh, you know, 10 to 15 minutes, uh, or you can listen to it on your Bible app. Uh, if you use what most people use on their on their phones now or on their mobile devices is a U-Version Bible app, it actually directly uh, it has this program in it. You can follow it and on that first day at the bo- there's a devotional section and then it'll have chapter if you go back to that and you scroll down to the bottom, you'll find Terry Lee Cobble's overview or her recap of that day's reading. It's incredible. It's phenomenal. In in our our Sunday school class this morning, probably about 75% of people are still caught up. Uh, now, I understand that as we go through the year, there's things that get in the way that make it difficult to stay on track. I'm going to give a couple pieces of advice. If you get very far behind, I would encourage you to re- to stay up with, it. so maybe you've missed a week and maybe you've missed this whole week. You're new to it. What I would encourage you to do is start with today's reading. And if you want to go back and pick up uh, Genesis, you know, the, the, another day to catch up, do that. Normally that would not be my advice. My advice would normally be just to start from the beginning, but because the, the way we're doing this, every Sunday school lesson and every sermon is going to come from that week's reading so it's more imperative uh that you stay caught up uh than any and if you fall behind just make sure you do today's reading and stay caught up as best you can so uh, i'm excited about this our church walked through the bible together on a chronological plan in 2011 we called it bible alive 365. we did not have podcasts and and other supplemental things to go along with it back then uh those all added dimension that make it even more exciting to me uh and, and it's going to be fun. Not only is our church doing it, but another one of the, the flash from the past, Paul Michael Baca, who was our youth minister and associate pastor for over five years, He is a pastor of First Baptist Church, Liberty City, and he he and I have worked together on planning our sermons and actually writing material for the Sunday school classes. Uh, Sandra and their discipleship director are coordinating that. So it's been a lot of fun, and you will get a lot out of it if you will spend time in God's Word this year and get excited about God's Word. Uh, Somebody's laughing out here. I don't know what I said. Every once in a while... Let's change gears for just a moment. Uh, we are going to jump in today with uh, our, our first sermon uh, from Genesis chapter 3. As I said, every week the sermon is going to come from something in that week's text. I know the Old Testament is a struggle for a lot of us. We're a New Testament church. Uh, we live under the, the, the covenant Uh, Of Christ not under the covenant of the law and so sometimes the things in the Old Testament are confusing and difficult but one of the things that you're going to find is all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi you're going to find Christ in the Old Testament and so the way we've structured the sermons in particular this year is we're looking for where Jesus appears in our reading during that week in the Old Testament he may appear blatantly. You may see a Christ mentioned in one form or another. He may appear as a Christophany, which is what, what scholars would believe where Jesus showed up in the, in the Old Testament in, in a physical appearance in some way or another. He may appear as a type or a foreshadow or in prophecy. But what we're gonna be looking for in, in the vast majority of our sermons from the Old Testament are gonna be pointing out and preaching from that text where we see Christ in the Old Testament, and that's true today. And in fact, in in our reading this week, we see Christ appear in a couple different ways. And so I had to choose uh, what am I going to preach from uh, where we, where the Old Testament, where Genesis here points us to Jesus. And so get excited about that as well. Uh, most of us, when we read the Old Testament, we don't necessarily see Jesus in the Old Testament. But what you're going to find out is that the second person of the Trinity, Christ the one who was born of a virgin eventually and and died for you and rose again, we see him all throughout the Old Testament and it's gonna be fun to find him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your word is rich, that your word is true, that your word is meaningful, that your word first and foremost reveals you to us. Lord, your word's not about us, it's about you. To help us to see you, to give you glory, to give you honor as we worship, to give you honor in our lives. But Lord, most importantly, I pray that your spirit would reveal the truth of who you are, that we might know you as we read your word together as a church. We pray in the, your most precious and holy name. Amen. Christ in the Old Testament what do you mean Jesus is in the Old Testament? My sermon today is going to come from Genesis chapter 3, and I'm going to give you one of those old, those big old theological words. It's actually a Latin word. Proto-Evangelion means the first gospel. You can find the first mention of the good news of the gospel in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But that's not the first place that you find Jesus in the Old Testament. If you were in your growth group this morning, you read about Jesus in the very first section of the very first chapter of Genesis. The scripture refers to in the beginning was God, right? In the beginning was God. Our lesson writer pointed us to John chapter one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, the question came up in our growth group, what's this deal that's going on in Genesis 1-2 when it says, the earth was formless and void, uh, formless and empty, and darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surfaces. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that light was good. Where did the light come from if God did not create the sun until until day three? Well, I have a proposition for you. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word was God, and the word was with God. And John writes a little bit further down in verse, for in him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and darkness cannot comprehend it. When, on the first day of creation, God spoke light into creation, I believe you find the presence of Christ in creation from the very first day. We had one student in our, in our class. He pointed out that as you get toward the end of Scripture, you see that same support. So let me read for you, and hopefully this will turn on a light. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 22 and 23, the scripture says, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. Speaking of the new heavens, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus was there in Genesis 1, 1 and in Genesis 1, 2. He is the light of the world before a sun or a moon or any other uh, orbiting, a luminary body was ever created. Jesus is the light of the world. He's there from the beginning. He will be the light for the heavens in the end. And as John said, when he stepped into this world, he brought light to this world that we might not walk in darkness. So yes, we're gonna find Christ the second person of the Trinity from Genesis chapter one all the way to revelation 22 because he is the focal point, the revelation of God to us. And if you heard it in my prayer, when you read your scripture over the next few months, I'm going to encourage you don't look for yourself in scripture. I've said this to our class. Oftentimes we go to scripture and say, what does it mean to me? What does it say to me? That makes the focal point of God's word us. It puts us at the center of God's word. We are not to be at the center of God's word. God's word is his revelation of himself to us. Now, certainly God will, will teach us about us through his word. We will learn what God wants us to know and, and he'll teach us how to act and what he expects of us through his word. But ultimately, the word of God from Genesis to Revelation is his revelation of himself. So as you read Job this week, don't ask yourself, what does it say to me? Ask yourself, what does it show me about the nature of God? How has God revealed himself to me today? Because God, if you will read his word with that in mind, he will reveal himself. He'll show you who he is. And you'll begin to see the glory of God throughout his word in a way that you haven't before. Today, we're gonna to be looking for that, as I said, that first mention of the gospel. It's in Genesis chapter three. It's a familiar story. And so many of us have heard it time and again, you've heard it paraphrased and summarized, but let's read it together. Genesis three, one through 19. The scripture says, now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you certainly will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. "'knowing good and evil. "'The woman saw that the tree was good for food "'and delightful to look at "'and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. "'So she took some of its fruit and ate it. "'She also gave some to her husband who was with her, "'and he ate it. "'Then the eyes of both of them were open, "'and they knew they were naked. "'So they sewed fig leaves together "'and made coverings for themselves.' Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze and they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. So the Lord called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I've heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock, more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And there you find God's first promise of good news. Through the seed of a woman would come the one who would destroy the serpent who brought sin into this world. This passage is full of a lot of first. I titled the sermon, The First Gospel, uh, because Genesis, among theologians, you know, Genesis 3.15 is known uh, by that the cool word uh, that means the first good news or the first gospel. But you see a lot of first here in Genesis chapter 3. Up until this point, we see the beauty of God's creative hand. We see God creating the heavens and the earth. We see God separating uh, the, the chaos, bringing out a chaos order. He separates uh, the, he sets aside the earth, he sets aside land, he creates plants and animals, he creates order out of all of the workings of the universe, and then he creates the crown of his creation. All of that after after his creation each day, he, he was saying it was good. And when he created man and woman in his image, which is the only part of creation that he describes as created in his image, he created man and woman, male and female, in his image, he describes it as very good. The crown of his creation, those whom he created in his image, and began a relationship with them, and he would walk with them, walking in relationship with, with us. Scripture describes through Genesis 2. And then you come to Genesis chapter 3. Now, God had blessed them, and he had poured out uh, everything that they needed for their, their, their physical care, uh, to have a, a beautiful relationship with him and a beautiful relationship with one another. And he said, he gave them one option or one thing he told them not to do. And as an act of their love and obedience to him, all they had to do was avoid that one thing. They couldn't do it. And God knew that. Earlier on, God had, when he began to speak to them, he said that, he didn't say if you eat of the fruit of the tree. He said when you eat of the fruit of the tree, you will surely die. God knew and he created us anyway. Man, if that's not another golden nugget of God's love and desire for relationship with us, I don't know what is. God knew that we would blow it and he created us anyway. You know that when God created you, he knew you were going to mess up and he created when God, if God called you to the ministry, he knew that you were not going to be perfect, and he called you anyway. If God called you to teach, he knew that you were not going to be perfect, but he called you anyway. See, our, our, our ability to, to fulfill the purpose and plan of God is not dependent upon our strength. It's dependent upon his calling. God created Adam and Eve with purpose, even though he knew they were going to blow it, and he knew what the cost was going to be to him. And that's what we see in Genesis three fifteen. So the first thing that we see here is the first temptation. And it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to, uh, to fail when they were tempted. The scripture says there that the, the, we can learn a little bit about temptation just through this text. And, and this is a narrative. And so it's not a, it's not a teaching text, it's not ABCD, but we can learn some cool things through here. The first temptation began with a misleading question. The enemy, Satan, did not come right out f- with, a, with a forward approach and say, hey, you need to go eat of that tree. He came out and he asked a question and began to lead Eve down this road. Now, Eve gets the blame here, but what a lot of people miss is Adam was standing right next to her. Dude, how many of y'all would allow a snake to walk up to your wife and start interacting with her without you intervening. How many of you, let's, let's not say a snake, how many of you, if, if you were in a parking lot of, of a, a quick stop and some strange looking dude comes up to your wife and starts trying to interact with her, how many of y'all are going to stand there silent? Eve is not the only one walking in sin here. Adam had a responsibility from the very beginning. When the snake comes to his wife, he ought to step in. But he stands there with his mouth shut and listens right along with her and eats, even though Eve supposedly took the first bite. You see it here in the text. She took the first bite. She handed it to Adam. He took it. He was standing there. So this old idea that it's all Eve's fault, guys, that's garbage. Adam and Eve, we're working together as they sinned against God. And Adam and Eve both are gonna bear the brunt of the penalty of sin. But the, the serpent comes to her and he asks a question You can't eat from any tree of the garden. That's not what God said. God said you can eat of every tree, just not that one. Well, then you run into the next issue. So that was a misleading question and it led to Eve coming back with a misconception. She says, and this is the first misconception that you see leading to sin, we may eat fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat or touch it or you will die. Have y'all read anywhere where it said, don't touch it? No. God said, don't eat of it. Eve wasn't listening very well when God spoke. So ultimately, one of the things that that has gone wrong here was Eve did not know God's word. Eve did not fully comprehend the the command or the order that God had given her. She kind of knew it, but she didn't fully understand it. You know, one of the, the times of Israel when they were in the greatest Drought, religious drought, was when Scripture had been lost. and Scripture, the Bible, the law, went missing in the temple. You know what I'm afraid of? We live in a generation where we are disconnected with God because we are disconnected from His Word. And if we, who are a part of the temple of the Holy Spirit, we who are his church, don't know his word, it's our fault. We live in a generation where the word of God is more available to you than it ever has been throughout history. Just just a couple years ago, I saw some video of one of the underground churches in China that had received a delivery, a box of books from an underground missionary. They opened this box of books and it was Bibles in their language. And they wept as they took those Bibles out and held them close to their chest because they had not had the privilege of having the word of God in their hands, in their language. We live in a culture where we have it on our shelf. We have it on our desk. We have it in our hands. The Word of God is available to us everywhere we go. We have no excuse for not spending time in the Word of God and knowing God through His Word. And yet we are the most Ill, one of the most illiterate generations that have ever been a part of this new world. And what I, what I mean by that, the, those who came over to the United States 200 years before it was the United States, till now. We have no excuse for not knowing God's word. That's why we're reading it this year together. Oftentimes, our our problems, our sin, comes from our misconceptions about God's word. If we know the truth, we can dispel the misconceptions. A misconception is a partial truth, if you know what I mean. It's a partial truth. Eve almost got it right, but she didn't because she didn't. Remember God's word. And then, of course, you have the first outright lie. Satan says, no, you will not die. In fact, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Now, there's a caveat to that because in some ways, Adam and Eve were already like God because they were created in his image. They didn't have all the knowledge of God. They didn't have all of the power of God. So what was it that Eve was looking for when she ate of that fruit? She fell for that lie that somehow she would be empowered. She would be like God. He said, you will not die. And they died spiritually. He said that your eyes will be open to knowledge. You will be like God. Essentially, what what the serpent was telling Eve is God is holding you back from being like him. You can't be as powerful as him. You can't be as glorious as him. You can't be him because he's holding you back. But if you'll eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. You'll have all of your, 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 your needs, all of, all, all of your, your desires fulfilled if you'll eat of the fruit of the tree. And in all honesty, that's the root of sin that we struggle with today. We wanna to be God of our lives. We want to run things. We want to be like him. The first temptation you see there. Then you have the first sin. So Eve looks at it in verse six. She saw that the tree was good for food. It was delightful to look at. And it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. It fulfilled a physical need for her and that it would fill her belly. It was good for food. Now, I'm not going to take time because we don't have that much time to do a comparison of the, the temptation of Christ in the, in the wilderness in between, between his baptism and, and his, the beginning of his ministry. But you see in that when Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness, the first thing he tempted Christ with was with bread. He treated him with something that was good for food. And then he treated him with something that, that, would, that was kind of a shiny object that, was, that, that he could grab a hold of. And here, that's what Eve says. Uh, Eve says that it was desirable or delightful to look at. It created an an, an emotive response in her. It was pleasing to the eyes. It it was an emotional uplift. Uh, Just this week, I have learned uh, something that I had missed out on apparently for almost two years. There is a, a craze, at least throughout the United States, over something that my dad used to hold coffee in when he went to work back in the 1960s. When I grew up, my dad had a vacuum sealed Stanley thermos and that Stanley thermos went with him everywhere until it got beat up so much from being dropped off of a a, a bricklayer scaffold. It would have mortar all over it, but it would still work. It would still keep his coffee hot all day long. Well, I, I did not know that right now there is a craze For something called the Stanley tumblers I'm like dad dad knew this years ago but he didn't pay $400 for a cup (laughs) Uh, apparently uh, you know there's a special co-branded Stanley is, is gone together with with Starbucks and Target and they've co branded these special colors and they are pretty they're bright and they're shiny and they are delightful to the eyes And people are buying those things for $39.99 and putting them on eBay for $400 and people are buying them because apparently to be the cool kid on the block, you have to have one of the fancy special edition Stanley mugs. Now, I don't want to get too far into y'all know my kind of country heritage. In fact, I hesitate to say this. But most of the time, a red Solo cup is just good enough. (laughs) And it don't cost $400. I write my name on it with a Sharpie. And nobody else will mess with it. Because they don't want to drink out of what I've been drinking out of. But what happens is we have this desire, some emotional response, that right now is causing people to literally get in line outside of a Target that has a Starbucks in it, at 9 30 at night the day before so that when the store opens they can rush in and fight off all of the shoppers to get their stanley tumbler special edition of course not any Stanley tumbler will will do we as human beings can be so stupid (laughs) when we let anything that is shiny be a delight to our eyes so much that we will give up what is precious. Now, I'm not saying that $400 is precious, but it's more precious to me than another cup in the cupboard. That's what Eve fell for. It was shiny. And Satan knows that. So he throws us shiny things all the time trying to get us to take the hook trying to get us to take the bait now for those of you that don't understand that kind of stuff the Stanley tumblers you would never spend that kind of money on it uh maybe you maybe you know a little bit about fishing you know that most of the time when I was a kid when when white bass would start running they start chasing the shad all you had to take was something shiny that's all it took With a hook on it i i I remember literally sitting in a boat with dad and he had a what we called a spoon it was just a shiny piece of metal with a hook on it and we were catching bass so fast that he got tired of catching fish and he set his his fishing rod down and had that bait hanging over the side about a foot out of the water and he's cracking a boiled egg and, and getting ready to drink some water and eat his boiled egg and a boat came by and our, our boat went like this. And that, that shiny metal dipped in the water, and he called a fish. <laughs> because they, anything shiny, they were gonna hit. It didn't have to be good for food. All it had to be was shiny. And they were going after it. Oftentimes you can catch fish on something that, in fact, I, I, I argue that most fishing lures are not made to catch fish, they're made to catch the fishermen. If they're shiny enough and pretty enough and cool looking enough, guys will go buy it and try it. Sin, oftentimes, is simply the root of us trying to have an emotional need fulfilled. And we think that Satan's way of filling that need is better than God's way of filling that need. I think that's the root of, of adultery. I think that's the root of most sexual sin in our culture. I think that's the root of materialism. In fact, oftentimes that's the root of thievery. It's a desire to have what we don't have because it's better, it's bigger, it's shinier, it's prettier, and we want it. And we have an emotional draw to it. And and that's, then the other part of this temptation, uh, Eve says is it was good, it it was, I'm sorry, it's a spiritual fulfillment when she says it was desirable for obtaining wisdom she thought it was going to make her a God or like God in some way. Ultimately, what God promised came to fulfillment. So you see the first temptation. You see the first sin. You see then the first act of shame. You see it in Adam and Eve trying to cover up their sin. You see it in Adam and Eve trying to hide from God. And you see it in Adam and Eve's fear once they sinned against god and they knew that he was going to come looking for them they were ashamed of what they'd done now at least adam and eve in their relationship with god had some sense of shame there comes a time when man continually and regularly sins against god to such an extent that it seems that we lose our shame and when we lose our shame that's when we're really in trouble as long as you're ashamed of your sin, you know that at least God is watching and, and you care. We live in a culture now where oftentimes shame doesn't follow sin because we've become so steeped in sin. Let me encourage you, believer, if, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you've gotten comfortable with your sin you still know in your head that it's sin, but you've gotten comfortable with it. You're in a dangerous place and you better run to God. Third, you see the first broken relationships. And the first broken relationship you see in their shame. They were afraid of God. They hid from God. So sin, the sin between, uh, of Adam and Eve broke their relationship with a holy God. And, and that relationship would never be the same until God did something to restore that relationship. God, a holy God, could no longer walk in the cool of the evening with broken, sinful man. The relationship was never going to be the same. But it didn't just break the relationship between man and God. It also broke the relationship between man and woman, between Adam and Eve. But the, the, the lateral relationships, the horizontal relationships that we have with one another, sin is at the root of our broken relationships. Because they had sinned against God, it it broke the relationship with with God, but you see it there when the first thing that that Adam wants to do is he wants to blame God, and then he blames Eve for his sin. Ultimately, not wanting to take responsibility for their own sin, they wanna blame someone else. And so then the the fifth thing that you see is the first lame excuse. I thought about all different kinds of ways to, to, to title this point. But in reality, I think this gets to it. It is a lame excuse to shift blame. Eve knew that she wasn't supposed to eat regardless of what the serpent said. Adam knew that he wasn't supposed to eat of that fruit of that tree regardless of what Eve offered him and what the serpent said. And so they try to come up with excuses to shift blame. But how often do we do the exact same thing? We, we want to blame God. We, and I'll, uh, full confession here, there's times... I'm going through a dark time in life where I'm tired, I'm weary, and I sin against God. And I want to say, well, if if you wouldn't have let so-and-so happen, I wouldn't have done that. Now, be honest with me. All of us, to some extent, want to push our blame off on someone else. It's her fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. It's society's fault. God, it's your fault. No, it's not. Your sin Is your fault Don't blame it on your mama Don't blame it on your daddy Heard a guy say he. This act when All of those talk shows of Mari Povich and Oprah And all of those things were so popular He said I wish one of these days Somebody just come on Oprah And just say It wasn't my mama's fault I did it It wasn't my daddy's fault I did it It's just because I'm a And he used a word I won't use It's just because I'm an idiot I sinned. It's nobody else's fault. It's because I'm stupid and I made a bad decision. Ultimately, we will not be able to move forward in our relationship with God until we take responsibility for our sin. Don't shift blame. Don't blame it on God like Adam did. Adam, When I say he blamed it on God, notice the first thing Adam said is the woman you gave to be with me. See, it started with you, God. You gave her to me. If you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't be in this mess. When all Adam had to do was be obedient and not eat of the fruit of the tree. And here he's blaming God. And of course, he's blaming Eve. She gave it to me from the tree and I eat it. I didn't take it off the tree. She took it off the tree. I'm one step removed. It's her fault. So ultimately, Adam blames Eve And then Eve blames the serpent. And you can even hear in that a little bit of Eve blaming God. Who created the serpent? Who let the serpent in the garden? See, we want to shift blame for our sin. And as long as we shift blame and don't take responsibility, we won't be able to be restored to a holy God. Then you see the first curse. God cursed the serpent. But then he goes on, You didn't read all the way down through verse 19, but he goes on to curse, uh, to express a curse on on, uh, Eve, the woman, and all of her descendants, and he expressed a curse on Adam and uh, talked about how both of them would would now face pain and suffering in this world, and there would be a, a death that would come at the end of this life because of their sin. Pain, suffering, and separation from God, all a result of sin. So you see the first curse. But then you see what I wanted to get to. Golly, you see the first gospel. God said, but I'm not going to leave you there. I'm going to send someone from the woman's, the seed of the woman, and it's singular in Hebrew. There's going to be a seed that comes from the woman that will eventually crush the head of the serpent. That word that's used in, uh, we, we read it here in the CSB, the, the Christian Standard Bible. He said, he will strike your head. You'll see it translated, bruise the head of the serpent, or it can be translated, crush the head of the serpent. He will crush the head of the serpent. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us that that's exactly what Jesus did. He said, now since the children have, Hebrews two fourteen and 15, now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shares in these so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by the fear of death. The good news in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is that God would provide an answer. He would provide a Messiah. He would provide a Savior. He would provide one that would come through the seed of the woman, that would bring restoration to a relationship between man and God. And he did that through his son, Jesus. So regardless of how dark and horrible this first sin is, this first act of shame, the broken relationships between God and man, God knew it was coming and he already had in mind an answer. Before the foundation of the world, he had set in motion a plan that would save us from our sin and express to all mankind how much he loves us. So that when Jesus died on the cross, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The first expression of the gospel is found right here following the first sin. God had a plan, and if you'll come to Him, and and not do what Adam and Eve did, and, and shift blame, but if you'll come to Him and confess your sin, you'll have the opportunity to receive that gift of everlasting life that comes through Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Wataga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwataga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.